This is an ABC podcast. We'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we work and record this program, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and the Turrbal and Jagera people. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and we extend our respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Jackie Huggins is from the Bidjara Birigaba Juru Nations. She's worked on behalf of Aboriginal people for most of her life, right from when she was a little girl handing out yes badges and hula dancing in church halls to raise awareness for the 1967 referendum. With her sister Nari Jarro, Jackie has now written the story of their dad, Jack. Jack Huggins was a loving family man with a beautiful wife, Rita, and a good life in air where he worked in the post office and was a champion football player and one of the first Aboriginal lifesavers in Australia. But Jack died young, following the hardship he endured in World War II. Jack had spent most of the war as a prisoner of war on the notorious Burma-Thailand Railway, one of about 50 Indigenous Australian prisoners of war. Hi, Jackie. Hi, Sarah. You've included some really great photos in this book, Jack of Hearts. Can you describe your dad for me? What did he look like? Well, he was a very tall, dark and handsome man, as I can remember him. And, uh, you know, we have that stunning photo on the cover of his book that really uh, bears the the beautiful man that he was, uh, both physically and, uh, of course, internally as well. You were only, only very young when he passed away. What memories do you have of him? Well, I was two years of age when he passed away. My sister Nari was three and my brother John was four months old. So I do have uh, memories of uh, my father coming home from, um, from work at the post office and uh, me kind of jostling and, and pushing Nairi out the way and uh, wanting to be put on his shoulders and, and to be carried and to, to have the attention uh, that, uh, that we all adored from him. Did your mum talk about him much with you as, as you were growing up? Oh, yes. She spoke very, very often of him, sometimes daily, and sometimes we'd all go, oh, here she goes again. <laughs> <laughs> here she goes again, but we'd stay with her. Uh, she would say, your father would be so proud of you or his favourite colour was blue or he'd like that car, things like that. He was known as Jack, but your dad's full name was John Henry Huggins III, which is a very impressive moniker. Where did he get that or why was he named that, do you know? Well, we're not quite sure, but as you know, um, John Henry is an American slang for your signature. Um, not that uh, we know where that came from, but we now have uh, uh, my son, who is John Henry Huggins V. So the name really carried on in a way in which, um, you know, surprises us, I guess, even to this day. And, and, but, you know, we do have Aboriginal people who call their sons, mostly sons, after their, their, the, the male members of their family. He grew up in the little sugarcane town of Eyre in North Queensland. Is that where his family were from? Well, my grandfather was from, his father was from uh, Charters Towers, in fact, 
And my grandmother was from um, Cloncurry Way, Port Constantine. Now, they must have met up somewhere uh, along the coast there. We presume it was in Bowen. And uh, from Bowen, they moved to Ayr. And what made the Huggins quite an unusual Aboriginal family back then? Very unusual because they were free people. In fact, uh, they weren't under the Atrocious uh, Act, the Aborigines Protection Act of 1897. They weren't um, put onto missions and reserves. Uh, They were very high standing in the community. Why that is so, uh, we're not quite sure. When in those days, of course, there were camps, Aboriginal camps outside of air, they were... uh, desperate camps and camps uh, that that had so much poverty and squalor. And they were kind of like holding pens for the Aborigines in that area to be shifted off and forcibly removed to Aboriginal settlements such as uh, Sherberg, Warrabinda and Palm Island, which were the main reserves that people from here went to. So here he was and his parents enjoying the freedoms that white people in the town did. We put it down probably to our grandfather coming back from World War I, in fact, and uh, our father following in his footsteps. What kind of sportsman was your dad as a young man? Uh, He had amazing athletic prowess. He was A-grade footballer, uh, rugby league, and with the Surf Lifesaving contingent as well at uh, the Surf Lifesaving Club there. And what do you know about his involvement in the, the Surf Lifesaving Club? Well, we have some information from um, one of our local Aboriginal men up there, a gentleman called Doug Lena. And Doug remembers seeing and um, knowing Father as a young man who was just uh, very... Um, very famous in that field because, you know, he was a man that had a a beautiful colour about him, of course. You know, he wasn't a a fair Aboriginal person. So he really, really stood out. Did you ever hear stories of him saving a swimmer's life? Yes, yes. We heard those from a very young age and uh, the river was, was a swollen river and my father actually dove into the, into the water and save this uh, this man's life, part of our oral history and, and folklore. But I know that Doug Lena also knows that story and other townsfolk of there. When war broke out in 1939, your dad was just 19. What made him sign up? That's a very good question and uh, we've asked ourselves that. We believe, though, we believe that uh, he was, in fact... Honoured, adored and worshipped his father. He was very much a man's man and uh, certainly his father's son. So your granddad had served in the First World War. What kind of barriers would there have been, Jackie, to him enlisting even in, in the First World War as an Aboriginal man? Well, there were many barriers. In fact, um, you could not enlist in a war if you were an Aboriginal person. You had to be what they called substantially white. And there is a, a, a letter in the, in the book that says that whilst he's not substantially white, he wanted to enlist on, on, the, um, on the front. Um, 
and a letter was written by um, the mayor saying he's a fine stamp of a man and he should go to war if he wants to. And what do you know about his service, your granddad's service in the First World War? Well, we know lots now because they have been borne out by his military uh, records. Our mother used to say in her oral history that our grandfather was wounded twice in Belgium. And uh, I used to think, oh, so fanciful, probably not, you know. (laughs) And uh, we got the records, there it was, wounded in the calf and and wounded in the shoulder. So there was the history, the oral history, coming alive on the paper for us. For both your, your dad and your granddad, though, I mean, they were Aboriginal men at a time when Aboriginal people were denied the most basic human rights in Australia. Are you surprised that they wanted to, to fight in the Australian army? Oh, yes, and certainly within my own radical days when I was younger and anti-war and all the rest of it, uh, I thought, why did he go? You know, I'm so angry that... Uh, this war, this fighting for country had taken him uh, away from us at such a very early age. We felt very cheated. There was an ache in our heart that could never be, could never be repaired. Well, your dad, Jack, sailed to Singapore in January 1942 and then with the fall of Singapore, he was one of the thousands of Australian servicemen and women captured by the Japanese Where was he taken first off? Uh, He was taken um, up the line to a a place, the Bang Pong Railway Station, where they got off and they had to to walk to one of the camps. Now, father was um, a fit man, had always been, but he was also a six-footer. And what they did was put them in these rice carriages that uh, moved along. The men had no ventilation. Uh, you know, they were let off for toilet stops now and then, but it would have been just really horrendous and, and very suffocating. And a lot of the men who came back suffered from um, crowded trains and, and cars and so forth. Um, they had real PTSD over that. And once it came to, to working as a slave labour on that, railway, that Thai Burma railway, what would his daily life have been like, Jackie? Very uh, routine. They would get up in the morning, uh, work and walk to the work site. They would dig uh, the rocks out of Hellfire Pass, also on the railway line. Uh, They had very rudimentary uh, tools then too, blunt objects. So you can imagine the calluses and, of course, uh, their bloodied hands after after trying to eke out some kind of semblance of a railway line. So uh, it was very, very harsh and, um, you know, we believe that, you know, many of the soldiers who went would have experienced a very horrendous time in the humidity, the humidity, the heat. We thought that because our father came from air, which is high humidity and heat, that might have been a saving grace for him as well. And then there's the, the starvation, the disease, the, the cruelty of the guards. I mean, it, it would have been a world without much respite. Oh, exactly. And uh, we actually researched 
the diseases that he got from, uh, you know, malaria to malnutrition to uh, beriberi, you name it, and that the horrible thing called PTSD, which was only diagnosed in the 1990s. Now it's a big thing in terms of, you know, uh, our soldiers returning from Afghanistan and, and other places, the new wars. So, you know, for us it was uh, very much a look into his, his history, but very hard to write to. When did you and, and your sister Nairi travel to the places that your dad had been held as a POW? We went pre-COVID, so we'd, we'd always wanted to go there. And, uh, you know, I, I say I, I kicked myself because I would have loved my, um, my mother to have uh, come with us, but her spirit was there with us and with our fathers. So, yeah, we, we went on a tour that was arranged by the Australian War Memorial we had a, an Aboriginal fellow there, ex-soldier, Garth O'Connell, a purely encyclopaedia mind. He knew all the facts and figures and would absolutely bamboozle us <laughs> <laughs> with uh, all the facts. We were just in awe of him. What do you remember about standing on the bridge on, on the River Kwai? That was um, very... Uh, Surreal, yet so real, because there we were, uh, the four of us, my sister Nairi, her husband Rod, and my my son John Henry. So we were actually gobsmacked that here he was. You know, we probably had his you know his footprints somewhere around us, invisible footprints that um, that were actually you know um, in the soil. So it was pretty emotional, of course. You know, I, I, I think about it, I, I pinch myself and think, what, did we actually do that? And, yeah, yeah, we did. Is there any physical trace of those camps that he was held prisoner in now? Not so much, you know. The one uh, where he, he left was, it's turned into a marketplace. That must be quite weird, that, that, that contrast of what you know in your mind happened to your dad and, and other prisoners there and bustling everyday life now. Yes. Oh, it was bustling and uh, uh, when we went down to the actual camps where they were on the water, you know, we could uh, envisage them coming back from a hard day's work and uh, washing themselves in the river and coming back, washing their clothes perhaps and uh, really, you know, trying to make a bit of a a life for themselves, but knowing it was so bad. Is any of the railway itself still there? Yes, yes, there are parts of the railway there. Um, some of the parts uh, were uh, taken by the villagers, local villagers, when the war ended. So they used, you know, some of the um, fragments for, for their own purposes. But yes, there are parts of the railway that are still there. You and Nari saw sugarcane growing. Why was that affecting for you? Yes, well, when we saw the sugarcane growing at the uh, station where he had to walk from, you know, we thought, oh, we wondered what he must have thought on the train and going through that, um, that railway, but also getting off and walking. There was sugarcane all around. And as you know, 
sugarcane is uh, is air. It's a sugarcane town. I mean, not as big as the others, but still, when you go to air, there's sugarcane everywhere. So I'd hate to say it, but he, I, I, and we know that he wouldn't have felt quite at home there, but you know, it was a little, uh, little settling for us that um, there was that magnificent crop that he had grown up with. You, you found a description of your dad in a book written by a battalion mate. Can you share that with me, Jackie? Sure. This was a diary that was uh, kept and uh, it refers to our father. Huggy, Jack Huggins from Townsville. A very good soldier and a better mate. Tall, dark, well-built, honest and unafraid. In fact, every bit another stout fella. A banana lander and Lance Corporal too. When we saw this, it was like um, gold to us because there it was in a written text that uh, has been the first and the last that we've ever found. So It's a beautiful tribute to someone. It's, it seems to, to really convey a character, a good man, a good mate. Yes. In the, the war records that you did manage to find of your dad in that official history, is there any mention of the fact that he was Aboriginal? No, none whatsoever. It maybe never crossed their mind or it, it, it just didn't um, specify his nationality. Would the Japanese guards, do you think, have realised that he was of Aboriginal ethnicity? No, I don't think they even knew what an Aboriginal person was. In fact, they didn't think there were any black people in Australia because all the soldiers were basically white. And, you know, Australia is very much viewed that. I mean, even today, they don't think there are any dark-skinned people, let alone Indigenous, in our country. And um, they certainly wouldn't have known. Would he have been treated differently because of his colour, do you think? Is there any record of, of Aboriginal POWs being treated differently by their Japanese captors? No, there, there is not. I think that um, the Japanese uh, Imperial Army... And the Korean guards would have seen my father, because of his dark skin, as a, uh, an Indian soldier. There are records of people um, being treated worse if you were an Indian. Uh, we believe that, and we don't know, and father never told our mother if he received um, more bashings than the other white, white soldiers did. Did he know of, of other Aboriginal men in in his group who were fellow prisoners, do you know? Yes, there was a man there, Bob Landers. By the records, it sounds like they both uh, landed at the same time. Uh, he was a Queenslander and then he was taken to um, uh, the railway within a month of their landing. So uh, Bob Landers seems to be the person, the common link that we have. Uh, they were rescued together. Uh, at the end of the war from a very horrendous uh, camp uh, where they were digging their own graves. And uh, Bob Landers had said this to his uh, his niece who gave us the story. And uh, our father 
was with him at the time. And then all of a sudden the war was over, great fanfare, and um, they were released and thankfully didn't go to their graves. You and Nori did go and visit the, the war cemetery there of, of servicemen who didn't make it back home. Yes. Tell me about that. Yes, that was in, um, in Thailand, Canterbury Cemetery, where all the soldiers are buried there. We went to uh, four Aboriginal graves there and we put um, poppies on them and we'd hoped that, uh, you know, their, their families would have known that we were there and uh, because, you know, we're very lucky to get that trip because not many Aboriginal people can do that or make it. So there they were, our soldiers in that, um, you know, that awesome country in those awesome graves. And, uh, you know, th- there were also some soldiers that were just left on the railway. You know, some weren't even taken back to be buried Luckily, luckily our father came home to us. Who met your dad at the railway station when he finally made it back home to Queensland? It was a, a man by the name of um, Loftus Bluey Dunn. And uh, he actually, by that stage, both my father's parents had died while he was away in war. So he, when did he find out about that? He would have found out, he found out in Singapore through another fellow from air who was uh, in the Air Force and he told him, Jack, I have something really sad to tell you, your mother's died. Because, you know, the the letters and so forth did get through or the wires. So when father came back, um, he was met by Bluey at the railway station and he actually collapsed in his arms. It was just too much for him. He'd realised that uh, both his parents had been taken away from him and died and that he was an orphan now. So he came back to that. And I guess neither his mum or dad would have known that he'd made it safely through the war. That's right. And um, on all their obituaries, you'll see that they have a son Jack, who is now a prisoner of war. Tell me about the job that your dad got back in air after after coming home. Yes, he came back home and a year after he got a, a job in the then PMG, Postmasters General, uh, which is now Australia Post. And uh, uh, the records say that he, they did say he was an Aboriginal man. So the first Indigenous man ever, or employee ever to serve in, 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 the, uh, in the post office. So very proud of that. What did that mean, do you think, for Aboriginal people in town to have your dad there serving in the post office? Oh, it was uh, quite enlightening. Uh, they'd never seen a black man behind the counter of anything, let alone in public service. So uh, we remember the stories, particularly of one that always is so beautiful that was told by Shireen Malamu, who is now an elder in her 80s, lives in Townsville. And she said she and her sister would go into the post office and they'd be looking at him giggling. And there he was, you know, the striking man with his tie on. And they'd go up to each other and Shireen would bump her cousin 
and she would say, could I have a stamp, please, Jack? <laughs> and uh, they would love it. They'd run off um, and uh, collect their mail <laughs> after that. Yeah. Your dad's experience there, Jackie, of coming home to a community that that respected him and valued him and having a good job, having his own house. How different was that from the experience of other Indigenous veterans? It was quite the exception. We don't know of any other Indigenous soldier who came back and got that kind of treatment, apart from aspects of Bob Landers' life. The rest of them were treated very harshly, denied access to RSL clubs, hotels, public places, because they were Aboriginal. So, you know, that that separatist ideology still very much uh, reigned uh, supreme there. Uh, He was quite the enigma in terms of when he came home and was just welcomed back. I mean, given a job, I mean, not many people had that. But our father had his house from his parents... He had a car and there we had people, ironically, on the fringes of uh, society in the camps there who had nothing. Broadcast... Podcast. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Jackie, how important were your dad's army mates to him in the the years after the war, did he stay much in touch with them? Oh, yes. They were almost as important as my mother. (laughs) (laughs) How did she feel about that? Oh, she got a little bit jealous, (laughs) I think, from time to time when he'd spend hours down at the RSL or in the pubs with his mates drinking. (laughs) Uh, But nevertheless, she knew that that's what he had to do. He had to uh, uh, be around his mates so that they could tell stories. What was unusual about the kind of language that he used with his his army pen pals, Jackie. Yes, well, we'd never heard an Aboriginal man talk like this before. You know, we thought, oh, he'd say, um, old chappy and, uh, oh, good God and, yeah, blimey and those sorts <laughs> of things. And we reckon he picked it up uh, from his mates in the, you know, the fraternity of uh, mateship over there but also, you know, within his footy and uh, surf life-saving club perhaps, because when you look at the photos, he is the only black man. Maybe he was taking the mickey sometimes too. Oh, I think so. Yeah, yeah, we'd like to think he was. <laughs> <laughs> After your dad returned from his years as a prisoner of war, he was looking for love. He was looking to get married. Mm. Where did he meet your mum? He'd met her actually before he went to war, when he was down here doing some of his training and then he came back to the same place. It was the boathouse, which is um, on the River Brisbane here. What kind of place was the boathouse? The boathouse was one of the... It was like the Coolbaroo Club. You know, it was one of those places that um, uh, had dancers, was alive, you know, had the servicemen, African-American servicemen, and, um, and our 
uh, servicemen primarily, and a few whitefellas would come along as well. And that's where many women met their husbands. But he came back that second time and um, he, he was coming down for some, uh, some medical treatment. And, of course, there it was, you know, sparks flew once again. And we think it's a really epic love story, this one as well. Well, he'd travel all the way down from air to take your mum dancing. That's pretty pretty epic romance right there, isn't it? Oh, well, it, it certainly was. And uh, the woman that she had uh, worked for in domestic service would actually give her those days off so that she could be with Jack. So that was kind of nice. He would have been quite a catch, I'm sure. What did your mum used to say about the fact that she was the one he fell for? Yes, well, he, she fell and they both fell head over heels in love and uh, she said he'd dated many white women. You know, being so devastatingly handsome, <laughs> he was such a catch and a good looker and women would just fall all over him. So um, my father, uh, he, he dated many and mum always had that saying that, um, you know, no matter who he dated, you know, this little black duck caught him in the end, which was lovely. <laughs> and, you know, my mum then, had she'd already had two children as well to um, a man in Sherberg and, you know, he still very much uh, accepted that, uh, loved her for who she was. So your mum and dad were both Aboriginal, but how different were their families, their backgrounds? Incredibly different. As I say, dad was a free man for all intents and purposes, had the rights of white people. Whereas my mother was ensconced on the Sherberg Aboriginal Mission where everything was denied to her, her language, her custom, her dance, her ceremony, even the right to marry. You know, she had no right to, uh, to, to marry. So very, very different uh, in terms of their freedoms, um, and for my father, I'm sure, who went back to visit her parents and asked for the hand in marriage, as you did in those days, it would have been very different for him too to see the overcrowding in the houses, to see people not being able to even, you know, have a drink, which he, he liked to do. Um, but I believe he and my grandfather um, did have a drink and a toast to the marriage. <laughs> All those things were denied. Mm. And Sherberg was a, a mission, as you said earlier, Jackie, where Aboriginal people were, were brought from all, all over different parts of Queensland. Where mm. was your mum's traditional country? Uh, my mother's traditional country was Carnarvon Gorge, Springshaw area. And the story goes there that in the 1920s, the days of the assimilation policy, she was rounded up and sent on the back of a cattle truck uh, with her family to Sherberg. There were five uh, at that time. She was sent there and uh, I, I guess she absolutely, uh, well, she had to stay there. She was, you know, we call it a concentration camp and, and, and um, other words like that. But Mother, uh, you know, she lived that life. Uh, she received her exemption papers, which are the papers you can get off the mission and sort of roam free. Uh, much more freer. Uh, she wasn't. She wasn't able to do that till she was about twenty-two, but worked in domestic service all her life. What did they look like in their wedding 
photo, Jackie? Oh, we we reckon they're the Royal Couple. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely stunning. You know, Mum used to say I had a 20-inch waist (laughs) and I wore pink, taffeta. Um, And my father, so handsome and and, uh, regal himself, you couldn't have picked, I think, a better match for each other and they just so adored one another. Where did they have their honeymoon? Oh, they had their honeymoon in Rita Island, um, which is outside of air, on a sugarcane farm um, that was um, owned by the family that took him under their wing when his parents had died. Very, very close. And given that your mum's first name was Rita, a befitting place to go on a honeymoon, I guess. Yeah, she used to say, you know, so Rita Holt became Rita Huggins and she honeymooned on Rita Island. (laughs) (laughs) So Rita was a big factor in those days. (laughs) As you said earlier, there's there's only one year between you and Nairi. Was there a little bit of sibling rivalry when you were little girls? Oh, yes, yes. Much more than there is now. I think we've matured as uh, women in our 60s. (laughs) (laughs) How did you get the nickname Hardhead, Jackie? Hardhead because I've always been a bit of a hardhead. Um, unlike Nori, my mum used to call her a softie. You know, she's a softie. And our father would say, you know, Rita, when I pass, uh, you take care of Nori because Jackie can take care of herself. But the hardhead, how I, I came to get that was that um, we were out gardening one night, one day and uh, Nari asked me to move away because she had the hoe in her hand and I just ignore her. The hoe came crashing down and I still have uh, five stitches and the big scar to prove it. Nari felt so awful and I was rushed to hospital, blood spurting out everywhere. <laughs> uh, I came back, Nari thought I was going to die, basically, but uh, I didn't. Thank goodness. And then the next time um, I got a thorn stuck in my head from the lemon bush. And I have to tell you this, a couple of years ago, um, John Henry and I were in Italy and um, I had a fall. I fell backwards, hit my head at the back, had a huge, huge, um, like an orange it was, the bruise. I had to catch a plane the next day home and I thought there's nothing going to stop me from this so we packed it in ice. I got on the plane, no issues and and, uh, we said, gosh, I must be a hardhead. So how did I escape that (laughs) as well? (laughs) So I've got a hardhead. (laughs) Do you remember your dad becoming ill as little girls or what what was happening with his health? Yes, I, I can remember my father just deteriorating um, and our mother just being so inconsolable about what she could do. So we used to go up to the hospital every night. We didn't live very far around uh, the corner from the hospital. So she'd pack us all up in the pram and just push us up there. And uh, a couple of people that we know said they saw that, you know. Uh, she couldn't drive. We, uh, my father had a car, but she she could not drive then. But she thought it was better if we all go up there and we sit and we pray and we, we just will him to get better, uh, which, of course, he never did. Was it 
a consequence of his years as a as a prisoner of war that that illness and that early death? Yes, it, it had built up, and um, mother always said that um, uh, he died from war injuries. And when we look at that, he absolutely did. You know, the the post traumatic stress. He got um, he, he got some heart condition as well, and. Uh, uh, eventually, he died of a massive heart attack and uh, cardiac arrest. So uh, we we believe that's all due to the trauma and he and his war experience. So your mum then was left with three little kids and her older daughter to look after by herself. How did she cope? What did she do? It's very hard for her. I think uh, our mother went through um, severe depression. At one stage, you know, um, she um, resorted at times um, to alcohol and she just couldn't contain her feelings. She uh, uh, she just grieved so much. She l- lost the love of her life, never remarried, could not. She had boyfriends but could never find uh, the person to settle down with because she loved our father so very, very much. So she she never got over him. She said that um, she would always stay on the war widow's pension because it gave her that gold card for medical and um, other other purposes. And she said that uh, no matter what, she would never give that up for any man in her life that came along. And um, there were some, but uh, she had to cope as a single uh, Aboriginal woman. Uh, she had um, brought us then down to Brisbane to be around our extended family. So she had some support from them. You know, they were um, really good as, as families are, very close. But mum, um, yeah, never, ever got over the fact that she'd lost um, her beautiful husband. You were then sent to primary school in Anala. How did your leadership skills make themselves known early on, Jackie? Yes, well, it probably came through the hardhead position that I had. <laughs> um, I was a bit of a toughie, you know. I could, um, I, I knew though that something was not right for our people because, you know, our mother, when she came to Brisbane, she became uh, involved politically in an organisation called OPAL, which is One People of Australia League, which in the 1967 referendum was very pivotal to the very successful outcome along with the CATSI. So, um, and I'd watched my mother. I'd watched, she'd take me to talks and uh, I watched her and I thought, one day I'm going to be able to talk. And she was a good talker. I want to be able to talk like her and convince other people that it was the right thing to do, to vote yes and to make us citizens of our country. And what kind of involvement did you have? You were just 11 or so in that year of that referendum. What kind of activities were you doing to raise awareness? Well, as you said before, uh, I was a hula girl with Nairi. Tell <laughs> me about that. Hillary with... Langford and others. Um, <laughs> that was really cute because um, we would go to dance halls and we'd actually do the hula and somebody said to me, what, hula hoops? And I said, no, no, it was like, you know, hula, proper Hawaiian hula. Hawaiian hula dance. Hawaiian. And they would throw us money, actually, coins. You know, we'd get hit by threepence and pennies and people just throwing these coins at us. So we uh, 
we really enjoyed that. And, you know, as young kids, you don't, you don't know too much else, you know, what to do to raise money, of course, for political purposes, but uh, that, that, that certainly was, was the case. And how did you celebrate once that referendum got the yes vote in 1967? Oh, it was the most amazing experience. We all went around to who I call the godmother of reconciliation in this state, a lady by the name of uh, Mrs Mira Langford, and she lived at St Lucia and she was having this barbecue and she was a mean curry cooker too. So <laughs> we thought, oh, well, this will be great. We'll all go over there. And mum took us over there. And just the excitement, just the excitement. And I heard people saying, we're free now. We are free people. We've had a yes vote. And uh, that totally stayed with my recognition of, um, of, of the time uh, that day you know, forever, forever it stayed with us. And, you know, just to be around adults that were so excited as much as we kids were. And we didn't quite fully fathom uh, what that might bring until years later. One of the first jobs you got after leaving school was actually with the ABC. What kind of attitudes towards Aboriginal people did you encounter at the ABC back then? I was 16 years of age uh, they were pretty horrendous and um, actually the racism was very um, overt and uh, it, people didn't mind what they said to you. You know, I was even asked um, by one of the fellows, Jackie, do you speak that boom language that they speak at West End? And I said, what? What did you say to me? So I spun around, this was in the tea room, and I gave him a serve the next day I was called into the um, a manager's office and he said to me, now, Jackie, stop being so sensitive. So, you know, nobody dare say that to me now. But it gave me great grounding and it gave me, you know, uh, the ability to, to talk back and to stand up for your rights, especially around racism. You put those skills to good use then in Canberra where you started working in, in your 20s. What role did you have there? Yes, I was uh, very lucky, in fact. Um, Charles Perkins had um, reached out and asked me to come and work to head up uh, this DAA, Department of Aboriginal Affairs Women's Unit. I was 28 then and I was put in charge of um, uh, 50 women from all over all over the country, and women in their 50s and 60s, which I thought then was really old. I mean, I'm in my 60s now, and I don't think the, I still think that's pretty young. <laughs> and um, first time ever, the government had consulted any Aboriginal women about policy and direction. So we put together this women's business report, along with uh, the Aboriginal Women's Task Force, of which the great and late Phyllis Daylight and Mary Johnson were part of. So that culminated in that report, oh, it'll be 37 years ago now. Now, you know what's changed, and people have asked me what's changed since then, 37 years ago. There are a couple of things. Um, youth suicide uh, and uh, climate change. They're the only two issues that have been left out of that report. The rest around homelessness, domestic violence, child protection, incarceration rates, they are still there. So the dial has not shifted. So that's why we all have a big job to do in terms of 
looking at where we can lend our support and our efforts to. 37 years ago when you were speaking out around issues, say, around domestic violence, did you feel that you were being listened to? No, no, not at all. In fact, we were advised by the government not to put that sort of thing into the report, but we did anyway because it was just raging in those days, Uh, probably not as severe as it is now, but it was certainly something that the government advised us not to put in, but we put it in. Does it feel... When you, when you think about the way that you, things weren't listened to, the way that those problems have persisted, how do you maintain your fight? Well, you always think, I guess, uh, I'm an optimist in lots of ways, but I'm still a pessimist uh, on, on, the, uh, on the other side. You just have to keep, you know, the fight up in the hope that someone one day will listen to you. And so that's, uh, I've always had that in mind that perhaps, you know, policy might change or, uh, you know, government will listen to you. Government gave us a huge investment uh, in terms of um, resourcing in the last Queensland budget. So we're on our way. You know, things have changed in that sense. And I believe that, you know, through treaty, we could have a whole heap of of reforms and, um, you know, better communication than we have now. What changed in your life, Jackie, when you were about to turn 29? Oh, when I was about to turn 29, three days before I turned 29, in fact, on the um, 16th of August, I had a beautiful bouncing baby boy (laughs) called John Henry Huggins, the um, fifth. Did you always want kids? No. (laughs) No. Um, I thought I had this amazing career that I was going to tap into and um, that would be very nice. And look, if it happened, uh, it would happen. And it did happen. And I can tell you, one of the most rewarding experiences of my life, I mean, I could never imagine life without my son. What did it mean for this big job that you had in Canberra? How did you juggle both? Well, I, actually, I, I I got pregnant during that year and uh, I managed, it was just a, a year's contract, so I was managing to do that. And then I, I came home to mum <laughs> and uh, I actually um, stopped working for a while. I knew I wanted to go to university, so I took up university. I had a very young baby. Uh, I have to say that, um, you know, I would get all my assignments done three weeks in advance because I love to write. And that's where I discovered the love of writing and uh, being able to do that. But your mum was happy to have to have this little grandson. Oh, yes. You know, I uh, because, look, 29, nearly 29, is very old for Aboriginal women to have children in those days. Not now. It's not now, you know, very acceptable in your 30s. But um, my mother, the light went on, you know, she uh, accepted. Now, I almost felt like a human being and and a proper daughter to her. (laughs) And she said, Jackie, oh, this baby will be so blessed and you bring him home and uh, and we will raise him. So, yeah, so so, uh, beautiful experience, you know. And he, of course, came with you, as you've mentioned, with you and Nairi and Nairi's husband to this great trip to follow in your dad, Jack Huggins' footsteps. What do you think your dad would make of how his kids and grandkids have turned out? Well, I tell you what, he'd be very proud of Nairi's middle boy, who was our first Indigenous judge in Queensland. 
And that was uh, Nairi's efforts and, and Rod's of raising them in the city rather than, you know, on the mission so they could get the full education. They'd be very proud of him. Our Brad is an extraordinary uh, athlete, or was. Uh, Brad's um, a little bit more mature these days. <laughs> <laughs> but Brad could run like a, you know, like the wind. He could uh, play football and he could uh, uh, do anything. You give him a ball, he would, uh, you know, be a master at it. Uh, young Rod, who we who we lost, unfortunately. Uh, Rod was uh, very skillful in shot put and uh, rugby, uh, rugby union uh, as well. Uh, my my son John is less so in the athletic ability, but he's got quite a brain, you know. He's a very good writer as as well. <laughs> and what so about, they're all different. What about you, Jackie? What traits of your dad have passed on to you? Do you think did your mum used to point things out or ways out that yes. the two of you were similar? Yes, yeah, she said um, I would. Um, I would be very determined, you know, if I wanted to see something through, I, I would. I would be uh, very focused and um, get the job done. But also traits around integrity is the big thing. Leadership, honesty, um, I think are some of the traits that I got off him. You said that when you were a young radical, you used to be a bit dismissive or a bit surprised by your dad's service, military service. How do you think about it now? Oh, I think it's completely changed my whole point of view. I think he uh, is so honourable. What he has done and uh, other servicemen and women, you know, in every conflict, every war in this country, our people have served. Hardly got recognition for it, but still, you know, they have been there. Love of country, fighting for country. And as my father and grandfather were, not even citizens of their own country yet. Yet they went to a a very distant war and um, uh, did the good fight there. Jackie, it's been really wonderful to learn about your family story and especially your dad. Thank you so much for being my guest on Conversations. A pleasure, Sarah. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Earshot is back with a new season called Follow Me. Meet a doomsday cult leader. When these chastisements happened, hell would be opened and all the devils would walk the earth. I mean, loving the cure now. Diehard music fans. At the tender age of 52. (laughs) And a mother trying to keep her daughter safe and sane online. Restricting and banning just hasn't worked. Come follow Earshot on the ABC Listen app. What path can I follow to not feel this anymore?